0: The present is no longer normal, nor can we expect a return to normal anytime soon, no matter how hard we might wish for it. Some called present post-normal times, fair enough. So what comes after that?
1: I've been a part of the post-normal uh, network for now six or seven years and a lot of it uh, uh, Post-normality, as I said last, isn't a bad thing or a good thing necessarily, but I think we tend to see some of these changes in a in a negative way. And trans-normal is the notion of a better world. It's Eleonora Massini's idea of visions of a desirable society. People have been talking about the new paradigm for uh, maybe two generations or, or longer, in the future space. So what we're interested in doing is trying to map what that area is. What is transnormal? What is a new paradigm? To what extent could we as a human society agree on anything and values particularly, what are the base values that might form the essence of a new worldview or a new paradigm that would give us a new normal, some sort of society that is not constantly changing constantly in motion
0: that is my guest today on future pod chris jones is a returning guest i spoke to chris previously in podcast 92 chris is a senior fellow at the center for post normal policy and future studies and is executive director at the transnormal institute Welcome back to Future Point, Chris. Aloha. It's good to be back. Great to speak to you again. It's been a couple of years since we chatted. Uh, I just re-listened to Podcast 92 and you used the pandemic as an ongoing metaphor for what the world was going through. Where's your thinking now and where's your interest and what's got your attention?
1: Fantastic. Yes, COVID has waned, and to some extent, we try to ignore that it even happened. (laughs) It's the story of post-normal times that there's this rubber band effect that tries to take us back to the familiar, back to normal. And uh, yet it, it continues to be the case that those communities that have been marginalized, indigenous folks don't want to go back to normal because normal wasn't very good for them. So by the same token, if you look at how politics has shifted in many parts of the world towards a more authoritarian regimes, normal has become problematic. But I'm happy to, for my taste, to say that things are going really well. I have done a lot of future work finally in the last few years, I uh, left my position at Walden University, where I was teaching public policy and administration, and have been working uh, pretty closely with Zia Sardar and the post-normal community, post-normal network out of the Center for Post-Normal Policy and Future Studies in London, and have had some exciting work in the last year in the future space, a project in Bosnia, some work in Malaysia with the new Ibrahim government in Kuala Lumpur. We've been working on further developing the post-normal game that I spoke about when we last talked, and a new nonprofit. Here we're starting in the Foresight and future space called TransNormal Institute. Cool. So there's been a lot going on. I, I'm really d- delighted to say that the workshops and uh, work uh, we did building policy in Bosnia and Herzegovina in the Sarajevo canton has gone really well. I have had a chance to work very closely with uh, some of our colleagues on, on the ground there. Mirza Saraikik, who is a professor of Arab Studies at the University in Sarajevo, and his work representing the Mulalich Foundation, they supported us in an effort to build policy for the Ministry of Education in Sarajevo around the ideas of the sustainability and future studies, futures literacy. And that went really well. We had meetings, um, preliminary meetings in the spring and then formative meetings in the early summer that has actually made policy for the government of Sarajevo for the ministry of education. That's promoting what we are calling safer education or safer learning. And it's an acronym It stands for sustainability. Awareness in the broad cultural sense and global awareness. Futures literacy is the F, E is for ethics. And R is for resilience, which the Sarajevo folks really embraced. The idea that uh, we need to be resilient in the face Mm -hmm. of uh, driving social change, uh, climate change, and the like. And of course, many of the folks that we worked with having gone through the siege of Sarajevo in the mid-90s were very sensitive to the conflicts going on in the world. That was one of the best uh, sets of uh, workshops I've ever done in the future space because they were very engaged, uh, very little resistance to some of the disruptive changes that we suggested may be coming on the horizon.
0: It's fascinating that it happened in Sarajevo. And I'm, again, reminded back to the, one of the questions I had in the previous podcast with you, and I talked about what do humans have to become in order to best navigate post-normal times? It was a hard question to answer, it was, but I'm wondering, the siege of Sarajevo was obviously a, a pivotal point for those people and yet they had a choice as to how they responded to that and the path they've chosen is the safer path it didn't have to be that it could have been something else what are your thoughts on that again just back to this notion about how people can be in the dross of post-normal times and can still make
1: wise choices there are certainly cultural forces that resist that i think sarajevo the whole of bosnia and herzegovina it is still very fraught with the cultural conflict and differences between ethnic and religious groups my experience w- was with one man who was a tour guide at the uh, srebrenica uh, memorial i spent the day in Srebrenica, where 8,000 Muslim men and uh, men and women and children were killed. And the man who gave me the tour was able to escape the massacre and marched for, I think, two or three days to his freedom. But he is now working with the Serbs and other groups in, in that community, even people who were part and and parcel to the traumas that he went through, but he's able to work with them on a daily basis. So I think it's that ability to be resilient, to continue to have hope and find the better part of people and work with them. It really is an individual basis that people decide to be open and work with others that may have harmed them in the past. Mm. So I I think it's that notion of resilience, of being able to change. That was very hopeful for me. That was lovely. So what you did the work with the department, Mm
0: -hmm. how does cipher get rolled out? How does it actually land in curriculum? So
1: We're at the very beginning. Yes, this is, is just beginning to roll out. There's been a report produced, a little booklet towards safer learning that lays out the recommendations, some policy recommendations along those five different levels, how to make schools more sustainable and how to build in futures literacy. So the the next steps will be working with the shareholders in the school system to use their ideas about how to move forward and not impose our ideas from the outside, but to develop domestic ideas and uh, projects and strategies to implement these recommendations. It is now part of policy. It's a formal part of policy. We have the support of the minister. Naida Hota Muminovic, And she was in both of the workshops that we held there in Sarajevo. So it was really important to have leadership there and committed and, and working with us. She's fairly new in her position as minister, I think has another three or four years in office. And so we're indeed hoping that we can roll this out to, particularly around climate change, the It's no mistake that sustainability is the first word in our acronym and that resilience is at the end. It's it's all about adapting to climate change, which is real everywhere. Sarajevo is a very interesting mountain city surrounded by mountains, and yet it's uh, becoming increasingly warm and um, uh, challenged with uh, floods as well as droughts occasionally. I, I suspect climate change is one thing that will. Yeah, be on everyone's uh, mind in, in terms of moving this forward. Yeah, the, the other point I think is also looking at the global uh, environment as well. Countries across the planet now are embracing futures literacy and foresight. Uh, it's not just in Sarajevo. We're working also, as I noted, in Malaysia. It's a worldwide phenomenon. I think they're sensitive to the fact that this is an emerging way of dealing with the challenges to education Uh, i'll say very briefly what partly drove our work there in the beginning was the sense that they needed to do some reform they needed to make some changes within their system and so we're hoping that futures literacy will help help inform that and the work in malaysia so this is the uh, irony, the interesting part is that the SAFER acronym was in some senses, a uh, few senses, inspired by a similar project that uh, Zia Sardar and other members of our group, Scott Jordan, Jordan B. Sarah, in helping the then-leader of the opposition, Anwar Ibrahim, who was elected now a year ago as prime minister. So they were working on a strategy that they called SCRIPT. Again, another acronym that stands, this one stands for sustainability, caring and compassion, respect, innovation, prosperity, and trust. And if you compare SAFER and SCRIPT, you'll see there's some parallels about ethics and awareness. And embedded in SCRIPT is a clear awareness. If you look at the document, as you read the document, in terms of the post-normal analysis, the realization that our systems, our social systems, our technologies are accelerating in their scope, speed, and scale of change, and that we need to respond to those. Uh, Prime Minister Ibrahim is struggling with a, an economy that is has for, forces driving it that are somewhat beyond his control, but he is a reformer, has been part of the reform movement in Malaysia, and so we're very hopeful that these concepts, these values embedded in script can be, can be leveraged to improve the life of all Malaysians. They have, since the script document was drafted, they have adapted it to the uh, Malay language and it is called Malaysia Madani in Malaysian, which means civil Malaysia. So. The basic idea is to try to make a society that's more respectful, more compassionate, as well as innovative and prosperous in in a way that improves people's uh, basic standard of living. So we took the script concept, basically, and so what what similar process might work for Bosnia, and thanks to the workshop participants, so it became safer. So, script is now, as I said, a major uh, policy initiative within the uh, Malaysian government, and it is being implemented at the ministry level. While we were there in September and October, part of the Center for Post-Normal Policy and Future Studies and the International Institute of Islamic Thought, called IIIT, were responsible for an exhibition that featured different aspects of uh, post-normal times and what that all means. And we are trying to connect that to what that means for implementing a Madani, the script approach for policy reform in Malaysia. What's striking to me, Peter, about both of these initiatives is that they very much both have A futures orientation. They're very much about foresight, about looking ahead uh, more than looking at the past. Yes, Chris, the thing I'm hearing from both,
0: and this is one of my ongoing sensitivities, is this managing external complexity, but also managing internal complexity. And I'm delighted to hear that people are looking at both In Ken Wilber's language, the external quadrants, but also the internal quadrants, the culture, the ethics, the moral basis of our civil society, and how that manifests and reacts to external conditions that are very turbulent and largely beyond anyone's control.
1: Absolutely. I think it was Johan Galtung who talked about the the tension between centrifugal and centripetal forces of change that is very easy to look at the external changes, but we need to be very attentive to what's going on with our personal values. And that couldn't be more clear here in the U.S. with the political fragmentation and intolerance that seems to be bubbling up. And it it takes concerted effort to try to see other people's point of view, to understand uh, the MAGA people are coming from, for example, in order to find a way to compromise to meet halfway or to move beyond. Yeah. I'm also, again, I don't want to overstate the scale of
0: what Sarajevo, and Belazio are trying to do. But it also strikes me that For the large first world countries, and I include Australia, England, America, in other words, the countries with invested success in the past and the old normal are finding it harder to adapt. They're finding it very hard to manage their internal narrative of what they are. And we're seeing, and I think America is just the extreme example, but it's not the only example of a, a first world society that was a winning society, if you want to use that terminology in terms of the economics and everything else, that is now finding it very difficult to find a narrative that they can
1: hang their idea of what they are and what they want to become. Oh, yeah. Oh, that's a very rich comment because there are a number of things going on with that. The narratives, the the size piece of it. Uh, the other tension in my life is I'm still very intrigued with and spend a lot of time looking at collapse images of the future and the collapse narrative. And so there's a, a real tension, again, between big and small because many of the collapse folks, the just collapse Collective, for example, will say some of those countries are too big not to fail yeah. simply because the forces of complexity and technology and growth have simply got the better of them. There's no way that, to sustain that. And maybe that is one reason why I have some hope working with these smaller yeah. polities as the, the chance of leveraging that to, to larger ones. That's another piece of the Sarajevo-Canton initiative because Bosnia and Herzegovina is a collection of, of federated entities. And so the real task, I think, will be to see, once it's successful in Sarajevo, will it be something that can be taken to the other cantons, to other parts of southern Europe, the rest of the world? So as I said, there's been a real tension for me in the last few years. People who've heard this, heard me before, will know that I've been really intrigued with the collapse scenarios and collapse possibilities. I did spend some time this year pushing that a little further and even spoke to that point in Malaysia because they're very concerned there about the South China Sea, uh, threats to the ocean. Uh, many parts of Malaysia and uh, Southeast Asia are dependent on the ocean environment. So uh, those threats uh, continue to be real. Uh, let me turn, though, to some positives. Uh, again, uh, the dealing with collapse and doom and gloom scenarios can be a bit oppressive. And I, I'm generally an optimistic person. So one of the things that I've really had a great time in the last year and a half or so with is... The post-normal performative game, for some years in the post-normal network, we've been talking about different kinds of ways of bringing people into post-normal thinking, and one of the ideas that we had was to do a simulation, and we came up with a post-normal performative game. We have beta tested this in... The Anticipation Twenty Two Conference last year in Tempe, Arizona, at Arizona State University. Uh, We uh, also did a beta test at uh, the Turku Futures Conference in June in Finland. Uh, Did a number of uh, sessions on post-normative game in Kuala Lumpur uh, last month, and also at the World Future Studies Federation conference in paris in october i am very grateful to wendy schultz and maya van leenput who have been my colleagues in developing the the game over the last year and i'm very pleased with how that is rolling out in fact there are a couple of us agencies we also believe are likely to be using the game and it's basically a a water planning, a water scarcity planning exercise that asks participants to role play. They are given different roles in a small community. They're asked to plan for reductions of 10% in water use every 10 years until 2040. And then they are faced with some disruptions to their process of mapping. We bring in some environmental, social, and technological disruptions. And then towards the end of the game, ask them to do a scavenger hunt to see if they can identify some of the different aspects of post-normal analysis uh, in the process of playing the game. For those of folks who aren't familiar with that, there's the four S's, speed, scope, scale, simultaneity of change, the three C's, chaos, complexity, and contradictions, as well as ignorance and uncertainty that seem to be growing as we move forward in these uh, interregnum years between paradigms, if we can survive to the next paradigm. So that's been a blast. It's been a lot of fun. We've uh, done that both with non-futurists and uh, futurists, and it seems to be a successful effort to help folks understand how those dynamics, those post-mammal dynamics, make it difficult to do decision-making. And that's increasingly true for all public policymakers. I love a game. Played with quite a few.
0: I got a chance to give a little brief video introduction to Fabienne and Tamas Gaspar's game in Paris as well. And I talked in that about the notion of serious games. You can always use games for learning. There's nothing particularly profound in, we've always done gaming to learn. But serious games take the learning to a deeper level and I wonder in the vernacular of the post-normal, whether we need to game more. Maybe gaming is something we do occasionally and maybe it becomes something that we have to do more and more of, that organizations have to build their own games, their own serious games, to play and to workshop their decision-making.
1: I couldn't agree more. I know particularly in the futures, that is clearly a desire and need on various listservs over the last month or two. The number of people that talk about gaming, what's going on in the Middle East and Ukraine and China and elsewhere are keenly of interest. One of the things that's pretty clear working with public policy folks is that they don't get to do the alternatives part, I think I have the same feeling, Peter, about the use of scenarios and scenario development, visioning, that we need to provide ever more opportunities to look at alternatives because we need to think outside the box, to to use a trite phrase, to uh, get folks to understand, particularly in um, a rapidly changing climate environment, that We need to be able to think on our feet and prepare for the consequences of the catastrophe as well as uh, for for golden opportunities that may occur. We see that, Chris, and
0: you work with policy people and I've worked with policy people, and the policy people fully understand the need to do the gaming of the alternative scenarios. They are good, in my language, to have these conversations if word of it gets out to their political masters, that they were even talking about those things, as if to talk about the devil is to invite the devil into the roof.
1: But that's some real cultural barriers, this whole notion that games are fun and that's what kids do. One of the things that's Pretty obvious. Is using the word simulation seems to fly a little better in a corporate and and management environment, but I think actually the truth is we need to play more, in terms of the broadest sense of that word, play the variety of variance in how things might turn out, and that we need to have fun with this. It's the other element about actually seeing professionals do gaming is that they often do have fun yeah and it's a it's just a switch from the normal work
0: environment and the whole point of serious gaming is to fail a learn by failing.
1: but exactly and i think we talked about this last time one of the uh, things that is very sad to see in the governmental space particularly is this fear of failure and For all of its uh, weaknesses, Silicon Valley culture and behavior seems to reward failure as a rite of passage, and I think we need to embrace that more. I couldn't agree more. Yeah.
0: Let's talk about space and ai Certainly AI has been a live topic on FuturePod. I've had a number of speakers in, I I, I won't say camps, but people who are taking that, yeah, and interestingly, IOA
1: Spice, where are you in that? I'm following it. It's, I don't even know how to put it. It's an overwhelming cultural phenomenon. And certainly at the beginning of the year to see the growth of chat GPT and open AI and how the, the number of members to with access to chat GPT grew faster, I think, than any other recent application or social media channel. So it clearly shows that there's a lot of interest in it. I've been following a number of futures listservs, been particularly keen on the Millennium Projects uh, efforts because of Jerry Glenn and others trying to encourage the UN to look more seriously at generative AI, but particularly the distinction between narrow AI and, and general artificial intelligence or super general intelligence that may emerge. And m- my sense again, I followed Dater's first law and I wouldn't predict, but it does seem that it's likely that we're not quite to. Uh, artificial general intelligence yet, it may be three to five years off. And that would be a, a turning point, I would imagine, in our understanding of, of how AI works and the point at which it would uh, exceed human abilities. It already exceeds human abilities and speed in some areas, yeah. but in terms of consciousness, perhaps even sentience uh, within three to five years. Um, I tend to be scared of this. I think that is, that is dangerous. In fact, I wrote a small piece, a list in uh, a recent issue of a critical Muslim that argues that it's an evil that our artificial general intelligence, if it is not carefully regulated, may get out of hand really quickly. One thing that struck me though, Peter, was a, a comment. I, I don't remember the author, but the, the idea was that this current hype or over-excitement about artificial intelligence is similar to the Y2K phenomenon, that it was touted as a potential disaster and m- ended up being much ado about nothing. Perhaps because we were prepared, perhaps because there was such anxiety about the switch in numbers uh, for the new millennium. But uh, so my sense is that the concerns are perhaps a little overblown, over-exaggerated, and yet because of where we're at today, but uh, potentially in five or 10 years, it could be so far beyond our capacity to control That that will be a deep trouble. I think I'm much like
0: you. I'm certainly following it closely, but at some level, just a little bit unsure as to where it's going. And yeah, I do have my moments of fear. But one of the things that I think I would describe as a concern, again, back to what you talked about, we have this wish to go faster and faster on the outside, and yet There is this wisdom in going slower and slower on the inside. One of the things I just read recently was one of the AI large language models is called Claude. And Claude has now got enough in its browser that you can put an entire book in there and it will give you a summary of the book. And I can see quite quickly people are going to go, oh, great. That means I, rather than sit down and read a book, I can just buy the book, paste it into Claude and Claude will give me a, a thousand word summary. And so I'll be able to stay up to date on all the books and people are going to do that. But that means they're not going to read. They're not going to take the time that it took to read the book. That's not another example of us trying to run faster and faster on the outside when we're wired
1: to go slower and slower on the inside. That's a great point. In a way, it, it's feeding on this assumption that we can know everything, that we can be a renaissance person, and somehow by summarizing, that'll solve it. Despite the fact that there's probably a doubling now, I think. I think we talked about this last time, doubling of knowledge in two years or so in terms of the total number of scientific publications and prep publications. So I'm not sure that's even possible to summarize things such that you you could know enough to survive in the world that's coming. Uh, On the other hand, I think that is AI is uh, purported to be the potential answer to part of that problem to sort out for our individual needs and values, if we have an assistant, basic computer assistant that's AI driven, that will know us well enough to know what we need, then uh, potentially that might be a a solution. My concern, of course, is about the assumptions and reading about how how the, the programming and so much of the algorithms that have come out of Silicon Valley and elsewhere are, are racist or uh, male-oriented and have these very subtle assumptions embedded in them that we're not even aware of. But one more point there about slowing down, I was fascinated a, a decade or so ago with the slow food movement and other attempts to push back against the acceleration of change We have established a new nonprofit here in Santa Fe, the TransNormal Institute. We were finally incorporated in August. And I say finally, because it's been a year-long process of building a board, getting folks to know each other, getting our bylaws and all of our ducks in order. And actually, it's been a rather slow plodding deliberative process that feels out of whack, out of sync with the rest of the world. We ought to be hurrying up so we can go out and save the world. But we've been very deliberate in realizing that we're building an organization of human relationships and connections and that those are important foundational elements to begin with before we worry about when we're officially a nonprofit and all that sort of thing. The TransNormal Institute, it, it's again, inspired by Zia Sardar's uh, work. I've been a part of the PostNormal uh, Network and his uh, center for now six or seven years. And a lot of it is uh, post normality, as I said last, isn't a bad thing or a good thing necessarily, but I think we tend to see some of these changes in a in a negative way. And transnormal is the notion of a better world. It's Eleonora Massini's idea of visions of a desirable society. People have been talking about the new paradigm for maybe two generations or longer in the future space. So what we're interested in doing is trying to map what that area is, what is Transnormal. is a new paradigm? To what extent could we as a human society agree on anything? And values particularly, what are the base values that might form the essence of a new worldview or a new paradigm that would give us a new normal? Some sort of society that is not constantly changing, constantly in motion. Now, that may be a vainglorious goal or idea that we can can get there, but it's a lot more hopeful than being just in the post-normal space, dealing with this constant drumbeat of disruption and turbulence that characterizes these post-normal times. So even if it was half as tumultuous, wouldn't that be a better place to be? So we're looking at ways to find projects, work with communities in order to build a better paradigm. Yeah. I
0: was going to ask you who the constituents would be for an institute like that.
1: People who have no money, probably. Yeah. So that that's probably the first challenge, but we're, we're interested as we are in the Center for Postnormal Policy and Future Studies to help uh, marginalized communities populations that have not had a voice, promoting the notion of polylog, including voices of those who have not been heard, who are marginalized. And I think a lot of our work really is in this space of our third tomorrow. We've come up with a scenario building approach that's a little different from the three horizons. It looks at our extended present our familiar futures, the four futures and other futures that we commonly talk about in the futures movement. And then the third tomorrow really is those unthinkable, unthought futures. Those may be the ones that we're most likely to end up with, and what would those be? So that that's a lot of fun too, because it it's that kind of space where we need to take leaders to think about the unthinkable, to imagine uh, the unimaginable, so that we can maybe find something less extreme, yeah, um, but uh, something um, plausible for to continue human existence. Your
0: experience in Sarajevo and Malaysia will suggest to me that you'll find people more readily able to think openly about different design futures because they won't have any real investment in maintaining the present.
1: Moreover, there's this dominance of Western culture and civilization that is is abrasive for a lot of folks in the rest of the world, and that having an opportunity to look at non-Western futures and indigenous futures is a lot easier. You're absolutely right. So, Chris, where to next? So, where to next is hopefully a more international work. Really hoping that our work in Sarajevo Canton will bear fruit and that we can do more work there. And in other parts of Asia and the Pacific, I have had a chance over the last few years to reorient. Myself more to the Asia Pacific region. It's continuing to leverage to make use of the post normal analysis to understand what these forces of change are that we are living through now. And post normal is so much about the present that it often doesn't really bring in a lot of the futures literacy and foresight elements that we are working very hard at our center and the new transnormal institute to integrate into the process. And as I noted earlier, move towards some more of a transnormal orientation. It's so easy to be thrown off, discouraged, made hopeless by the the doom and gloom that surrounds us. I I don't think that's going away. Climate change is only going to accelerate. We're looking at Increasing evidence of global weirding, as um, John Sweeney puts it. The work that we're doing is designed to help communities, individuals, and organizations navigate these uncertain times and to look for better futures beyond the turbulence and disruption of social, political, and technological change. I'm very hopeful, particularly about the growth in the futures field itself. I see a lot more interest, a lot more folks involved that brings both challenges as well as issues for the field. But I'm really excited about the fact that we're getting more attention now about future studies than we have for many years. And again, thank you very much, Peter, for all the work and your team are doing in FuturePod. And making sure that uh, the voices of futurists are, are more accessible across the planet.
0: Thanks, Chris. That was very kind. Appreciate that. I send my muscles and my strength and my wishes and prayers to you. I think the uh, the work you're doing in places like sorry, Amo in Malaysia are inspiring. I love the work of post oral policy. I think that group of people have done fantastic work. And good luck with the game, and good luck with the Transnormal Institute and working with disadvantaged communities. I'm sure you'll find that. enthusiastic people trying to build better futures for themselves. And thanks for taking some time to spend some time with the FuturePod community. My
1: pleasure, Peter. Aloha. Thank you so much. It was wonderful to catch up with Chris
0: again and hear the tales of his work to build part of the next paradigm. It is a powerful antidote to the disaster porn preferred by the commercial media. FuturePod is a not-for-profit venture. We exist through the generosity of our supporters. If you would like to support the pod, then please check out the Patreon link on our website. I'm Peter Hayward. Thanks for joining me today. Till next time.